Chapter Nine of The Heron Nest by W. Bird Foster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Nine At Work in Earnest. But now the snow was fast melting, and an occasional wind brought the frost out of the ground, so there was plenty to do in preparation for the garden. In the cellar of the burned stables was a heap of well-rotted manure, and this, with the few loads left from that secured from the hotbed, was all the fertilizer, saving a barrel of lime that the herons had. Billy slaked the lime, and as Jack wheeled out the stable scrapings and spread it on the land, the lime was mixed with it. Lime is good for all heavy soils. It cures the sour in the land, lightens it, and likewise discourages insects and cutworms. They had measured the dimensions of the plot they wished to cultivate, and Billy drew a plan of it on a large sheet of cardboard. One end was to be devoted to vegetable for their own consumption. A few early potatoes, dwarf peas, beets, snap greens, turnips, carrots, and a little salad and radish bed. Each bed was defined on this plan, its extent, the distance of the rows apart, and the date when the seed should be planted. Of course, the larger part of their cultivated patch was to be devoted to onions. They could not afford a cedar and marker, not a botten one, but it is quite necessary to sow onion seed in straight rows and as thinly as possible. Although good crops are harvested by broadcast sowing, such sowing is of late onions, not early. And Billy knew that this land, having lain fallow for two years, and having been allowed to grow to weeds, would be altogether too foul to risk broadcast sowing. He knew that they would have to fight weeds from the start, and the whole season through. Nothing but continual knee-drill is going to keep our onion bed clean. Make up your mind to that, Jackie, he declared. But Billy's mind now was given to the marking and sewing of the plot when it should be ready. To make the marker was a simple matter. In a piece of two-by-two two joist, three feet long, he fixed securely an old rake handle. Then to the joist he nailed five-pointed strips of lathe, about fifteen inches long and nine inches apart, like the teeth of a very coarse rake. By stringing a garden line along one edge of the plot to mark the first drill, they could line out the entire plot with this marker, four rows at a time. The making of a planter was a much more difficult matter. They had planned to sow more than an acre to onions. To do it by hand would have been a tedious and most unsatisfactory task, and Billy did not lack wit and invention. He began by nailing two strips across the bottom of a keg that he knocked to pieces, and so made a wooden wheel, boring a hole in the center. He bolted a handle to this wheel, greasing the bolt well so that it would cause no friction where it passed through the hole in the handle, and where it was given plenty of play. He found a large-sized shoe blacking box. It was six inches across, the cover of which fitted snugly. There was a tinsmith in Medway, and Billy got the man to let him punch some holes around the sides of both the box and its cover, using a pear-shaped punch, the small end of which was just big enough for an onion seed to drop through. These holes he punched half an inch or so apart, 
and when the cover was placed on the box, by twisting it, the holes could be opened as far as he wanted them, or closed entirely. He tacked the bottom of the tin box on the side of the wheel opposite to that on which the handle was fixed. When placed flat with the box upward, the seed could be poured in and the cover clapped on. When ready to use, all one had to do was to screw the box cover around until the smaller end of the pear-shaped holes appeared. Thereupon, the seed began to drop, and the person manipulating the planter must walk briskly along the drill, running the wooden wheel to one side of the furrow, so that the seed would drop therein. Simple as it was, and practically costing nothing, the machine worked very well, and could be used for other seed beside onion. The planting was in the future, as yet, however. It was real March weather most of the time, windy and raw, with now and then a sharp flurry of rain or snow. But the rising mist in the morning proved conclusively that the frost was coming out of the ground, and already in the sheltered hollows the bushes were feathered with tender green. Jack swung an axe over his shoulder every morning now, and marched up the terraced hillside to a patch of second growth, where the trees grew closer together and sadly needed thinning. If the timber was ever to come to maturity and be of any value at the mill. Mr. Menden had advised the thinning of this stand of hemlock, for the trees were just about the right size for fence posts, and Jack found, after he learned to swing the heavy axe skillfully, that he could cut and pile fifty or sixty eight-foot posts a day. It was hard work, even for the big fellow, but at the rate Mr. Menden had promised to pay him, he saw his wages rolling up most cheeringly. Until now, Jack's mind was comparatively easy when he was earning money, but the whole family had begun to notice his unnatural quietness, and the fact that his laugh seldom rang true as it used. Granny had suggested an unfailing remedy for spring disorders, bone-set tea. Billy wisely decided that the change in Jack was due to the great conspiracy. He saw that his brother was never at ease in Pearl Mary's presence. The big fellow was such an abrupt, open-spoken individual that this attempt to carry matters as usual before their elders and to betray no suspicion of the secret understanding between the younger trio Billy believed was wearing on Jack. On the other hand, Pearl Mary seemed lighter-hearted than ever. If her gaiety struck a false note now and then, Granny or Aunt Nanny did not suspect it. Since the night the girl had come home with her heart and head filled with the discovery she had made through the cruelty and thoughtlessness of Veronica Calvert, the young folk had never spoken of the matter. But often, Billy wondered, and in no little trouble of soul, what was passing in the girl's mind in relation to her status in the family, and he could not fail to note that sometimes his brother sat gloomily aside from the family group and watched Pearl Mary with an expression on his face that the cripple was not wise enough to read. Because there really was no shadow of difference in the attitude of Pearl Mary and himself, Billy was blinded to much of the change of Jack's intercourse with the girl. When Jack's hand touched Pearl Mary's as he was passing her a plate at the table, the boy's own hand trembled so that the plate was dropped and broken. 
They all laughed at his awkwardness and the flush that mounted so suddenly to the very roots of Jack's thick, curling hair. Even, Billy considered, only a mark of his natural confusion. It was the big fellow's nature to be reticent. With Billy, he had ever been less embarrassed in speaking of his secret feelings than with anybody else. But there was that now in Jack Heron's heart that he could not discuss with his brother. Their mother, dying while Jack was so young, and Mr. Heron's attention being solely on his business, while that business endured, Billy had played confessor to his brother, when Jack had ought to confide in another. These retiring, undemonstrative souls sometimes have a hard time of it in this rude, workaday world of ours. Jack's occasional outbursts and blunt speeches were the expression of actual bashfulness, but few who knew the big fellow would have believed it. There was no difference, now, in the boys' relations in other matters. Both were eagerly interested in the attempt to establish the family upon a sound financial basis through the development of the opportunities the present conditions gave them. It was true that they might not be able to retain Rack and Ruin Villa for many years on the easy terms that now prevailed, but Billy would not hear of worrying over what the future might have in store for them. So he philosophized. Let each day's work be sufficient for us. Let us do our best in each situation that we meet. Then we may not justly hold ourselves or each other in fault for what people are too prone to call mistakes. And let everything we do be done as though these same conditions were to last forever. It is better and a safer creed to live as though this life were eternal than that nothing mattered but eternal life. But Jack had fine opportunity during these long days in the woods alone to hug to himself the secret that had grown so mightily since that never-to-be-forgotten night when he had borne Pearl Mary home through the storm and darkness. The impression that had been made upon his mind and heart then was such that often, apropos of no voluntary suggestion and as sudden as a lightning's flash, the scene rose before him in colors so vivid that its effect upon him was that of a physical shock. He seemed actually to feel her form pressed close in his arms, her arms around his neck, the wind-flung lock of her wet hair as it brushed his cheek, and the pressure of her lips upon his in reward for his strength and gentleness warmed again in the magic of memory. But these remembrances were but tantalizing. He knew Pearl Mary had looked upon him always as a brother, had considered him just as any girl would consider her brother. They had been playmates almost since he could remember. She had bullied him not a little, too. And she had always been less lenient than other people with his faults. There was not a particle of evidence of her preference of him that Jack could now see to bolster the hope that burned within him. And he saw, too, the continuation of her confidential relations with Billy, with a bitterness that was not the easiest thing he had to bear. For Jack's was a loyal soul, and to be, even in secret, a rival with his brother for Pearl Mary's favor seemed errant treachery. If Jack so keenly remembered when his heart cried out a warning to him, when his real feelings toward the girl 
were laid bare to his startled gaze. There was etched upon his mind, in much deeper lines, another picture. It was that of Billy and Pearl Mary in each other's arms the night that the girl had learned the truth about herself. Ah, that was a vision that haunted Jack without recess. Sometimes it obsessed him so strongly that he flung down his axe and covered his eyes to try and shut out the scene. And so, sitting on a heap of the fence posts one afternoon, his shoulders drooped and his head resting in his hands, a voice floated down to him from the summit of the knoll on which he had been at work. So this is a sample of your activity, is it, young man? From a frame of evergreen branches, he wondered tremblingly how long she had been there. Pearl Mary's laughing face looked down upon him. Under the red-lined hood of her cape, the golden hair escaped, and her blue eyes danced at him, and her smile was quite bewitching. Sluggard, arise, she cried, or is the day's work done? It will be dark before we get home. See what a raid I have made? She burst through the clinging branches and came into view, with her arms full of pussy willows gathered at the edge of the creek. They're mighty pretty, said Jack, who had jumped up with face ablaze. But he looked straight into Pearl Mary's face when he said this, and it was her eyes only that he saw. She came lightly down the slope, smiling, but with a good deal of color in her own cheeks. To cover his confusion, or because of it, Jack began to swing the axe mightily. An eight-inch butt was bitten into by the flashing blade and felled in a couple of minutes. "'Don't you do it fine, Jack?' exclaimed the girl, watching him with real approval. "'It's splendid to be big and strong, isn't it?' Jack jerked out between blows as he severed the tough limbs from the fallen tree. "'But brains go a good deal farther. Ain't that so, Mary? Look at Billy now.' "'Oh, well, Billy. There's only one Billy, of course,' she admitted. "'But a man must feel so much surer of himself when he's strong. He can do anything. He can get along anywhere. He's independent.' He's so much better off than a woman, better off than all the Billies in the world, too. Just think of how helpless I am, Jack, she added with a sudden break in her voice. He glanced up at her and saw what she meant in her face, but he could say nothing. If it wasn't for you good boys, what would become of me? Pearl Mary pursued. What would have happened to me long ago if you had not all been so kind to me? Suppose Father Heron and your dear mother, Jack, had refused to care for little orphan me, a nobody, a foundling. They had never spoken of this before, never a word. Jack flung down the axe again and turned on her fiercely. The words were fairly wrenched from him when he interrupted her. Don't talk of it. I wish you had never known a word about it. I do, I do! And yet, how could we keep you from knowing the truth? I haven't been happy since. We never shall be happy again, as we used to be in the old days. He brushed the back of his hand across his eyes and turned away from her once more, unable to hide his emotion, ashamed of it, too. The girl studied his averted face and her own 
countenance paled. She sighed. The branches of pussy-willows slipped unnoticed from her arms, and her head drooped. No, it will never be again as it used to be, she whispered. Then, in a moment, she said softly, Isn't it time to go home now, Jack? He gathered the fallen buds when she turned away, and carried them as well as the axe. They picked their path in silence over the knoll, down to the creek's edge. The short spring day was dying, shrived only by the monotone of a lone sparrow in the hedge. His call marked the loneliness of the scene. A depressing hush seemed to have fallen on all nature. Side by side, still without speaking, they came to the stepping stones about which the shallow water brawled. The girl hesitated. They looked at each other covertly, guiltily. The thought was rife in both their minds how easy it would be for Jack to gather her up in his arms and carry her across in safety. But the glances that mingled for an instant only flashed apart, and I, I'll steady you over. Don't be afraid, said he hoarsely, and plunged into the stream, offering her his hand. He walked beside her as she stepped so lightly from stone to stone, and it was not until she was upon the other bank, dry-shod, that Pearl Mary saw he was not wearing his storm-boots that day, but had waded through the stream almost to his knees. She dropped his hand instantly, and he fell behind her as they followed the well-defined path down the hillside toward home, and each step which brought them nearer to the little cottage, from the windows of which the evening lamp already beamed, seemed to lead them further apart. For Jack Heron thought on Billy, had he not been tempted to act the traitor toward his own brother? And Pearl Mary. Ah, she felt the gulf widening between them, but the reason for it was her own secret. End of chapter 9